We're going to start our morning in verse 25 of John chapter 16. This is the upper room discourse, which means this is the time that Jesus was with the disciples. We kind of think about it like that Last Supper painting, you know, that's what this is. Um, He's in a room, he's having a meal with his disciples, they take communion together, and this is like them hanging out together before Jesus is going to be arrested and tried and ultimately killed and then resurrected. Uh, This is his last time with his closest disciples, and so he uses that time with them to tell them a lot of really important things. Um, that's what the, the upper room discourse really is. And so uh, we've been spending, uh, we're spending the summer in this. And, um, you know, one of the things that we said in the beginning of this series was, you know, Jesus talks in, um, in the Sermon on the Mount. If you're familiar with that, it's his most well-known sermon. We read about it in all the Gospels uh, in some form or another. And in the Sermon on the Mount, for example, Jesus is explaining to his disciples, to people who will follow him, what it looks like to be a disciple of Jesus. Well, in the Upper Room Discourse, which is another really well-known sermon, really, like long explanation and message of Jesus, what he's describing is what it looks like not to be someone who lives a certain way and acts a certain way, but really to be someone who is connected to God and is like receiving their life from God. Because Jesus has just been walking with the disciples for years of their lives, and if they want to be connected to God, you know, he's right there next to them. It's kind of easy. But Jesus knows he's going away, and so he tells them all about what it looks like to stay connected with God and to, most importantly, be receiving life from God rather than probably making that mistake of thinking that it's all about doing things for God and acting a certain way for God and going out and proving something to God. That's probably the biggest theme of the upper room discourse is instead of doing and acting, uh, Jesus is really talking about the importance of being, of staying connected to God, and of receiving And he's also describing for them what it's going to look like for them to go on without him. So we're going to start in verse 25 of chapter 16, and I'll put it up on the screen for you um, if you don't have a Bible. And um, we're going to read through to the end of this chapter. All right, Jesus says this, I have said these things to you in figures of speech. The hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but will tell you plainly about the Father. In that day you will ask in my name, and I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf. For the Father himself loves you, because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. I came from the Father and have come into the world, and now I am leaving the world and going to the Father. His disciples said, Ah, now you are speaking plainly and not using figurative speech. Now we know that you know all things and do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you came from God. Jesus answered them, Do you now believe? Behold, the hour is coming, indeed it has come, when you will be scattered each to his own home and will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. You know, I recently started watching 
a show um, about a therapist. It's called Shrinking. And in this show, it's about a guy who's a therapist, and he kind of starts to lose it with being a therapist. And it's basically because he just gets tired, he says, of sitting there day in and day out, knowing what people should do, but not being able to just tell them to do it. Uh, because, you know, if, if you know anything about how it works, go to counseling or therapy, they're supposed to ask you, and how do you feel about that? And why do you think you're here? And how are you feeling today? And what do you think it looks like to deal with that or whatever? But, like, the cardinal rule is that you're not allowed to just tell them their problems and what to do right there. Uh, if you do that, you, like, take away their autonomy. You take away their ability to discover this thing for themselves. And so you have to just kind of ask them questions and, and hope that they at some point realize their problems uh, because people learn uh, early on. You really can't just tell people their problems. Uh, if you, uh, you don't have to be a counselor to know this, by the way. Um, I, I was talking to a friend recently whose uh, son uh, was uh, you know, making some not great choices, and he had all kinds of great advice to give his son, and yet, strangely enough, his son did not take any of his dad's advice. And I thought his advice was great. I said, you could have like a radio show where you just give advice and, uh, and everyone will benefit from it and take it. It'll be like advice from a father to a son, you know? The only problem is your son will never take the advice that you give, uh, which is the only person that you really care about getting it, right? We know that this is kind of how we work. This is why for a long time in his ministry with his disciples, Jesus doesn't always just tell them things in a straightforward way. He asks them questions, because he knows that uh, they need to understand these things through experience. They need to figure it out as they're walking along on this journey with him. Now, there's another reason that he talks to them in a confusing way. At a certain point in his ministry, he realizes, and he knows, if I'm very clear with everyone, my ministry will end sooner. My enemies will, will take the words I use, they'll use them against me, they'll try me, and then I will stop having to, I'll, be able to, I'll have to stop preaching to people and, and doing the ministry that I'm doing on this earth. So he starts speaking in parables, kind of in riddles, gets kind of even more confusing. Needless to say, if you're a disciple of Jesus, you've just spent years with a guy who doesn't like to answer questions in the simplest, most direct way possible. And it can kind of probably get a little bit frustrating. So it makes sense that in verse 29, his disciples say, Ah, now you are speaking plainly and not using figurative speech. Like these guys are very happy at this point. Jesus is like, all right, I'm just going to give it to you straight. I'm going to tell you exactly this thing in the clearest way possible, uh, no more, uh, you know, questions and think about it and go away and do this thing instead and here's a team building exercise or a trust fall or whatever they had to do, you know, the stuff that we don't read about. He just tells them point blank, um, I'm going to speak to you as clearly as I can. And what he tells them as he's speaking to them clearly is what we talked about last week is, is really the same sort of thing that he's telling them this week. Um, in the previous passage, Jesus was telling the disciples two things about what it meant to be a follower of his. One, being a follower of his was going to bring suffering. It was going to bring things into their lives that were going to make it harder. And a lot of those things were going to be specific to them being disciples which means uh, you could choose to stop being a disciple if you wanted to get away from that pain, which is what a lot of people tend to do. 
People would come to Jesus because he offered them something that they wanted, life. He healed them. He gave them food. He gave them a compassionate ear. And, and, and they received something from him that made their life better. Uh, but if they began following him as a disciple, they would quickly realize that there are aspects of being a disciple of Jesus, being a part of the kingdom of God that made your life on this earth harder, it seemed. So Jesus says to his disciples, this will bring some suffering. But what he also says to his disciples is that if you follow me and if you're my disciple, what you will also experience is joy. You'll experience a greater joy than, uh, than the suffering is. The joy will outweigh the suffering. Last week, we talked about joy. This week, Jesus says something different, but so similar. In the very last verse of this passage that we're in, Jesus says in verse 23, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. I have overcome the world, says Jesus to them. He wants his disciples to know that not only can they experience a profound sense of joy, a greater joy than you could experience anywhere else by being his follower, being a disciple of his, being a part of the kingdom of God, but you also can experience a level of peace that you cannot find anywhere else. These are the things that Jesus promises to those who follow him, who are a part of the kingdom of God. Now, when we think about being a religious person, being a person who, you know, believes in God and maybe goes to church and maybe tries to, you know, do the, the Christian thing, we usually think uh, about a person who's good at following rules. Uh, we think about a person who's good at acting and behaving a certain way. Maybe they've got a life that looks put together in a certain way. Um, and people have, for a very long time, gotten confused about what it means to actually be a part of God's kingdom above all else. The Apostle Paul knew this. He often encountered people who were confused about what it meant to actually be a part of the kingdom of God. You know, what do I spend my time trying to do? What do I work on? What do I focus on? What do I make my goal in this? And he says this in Romans 14, for the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Like, why is he talking about eating and drinking? Because at this point, he was talking about the things that people did as a way of being a, an obedient, good person. Uh, the Jewish people had determined that um, the kingdom of God was about rules. If you ate the right things and abstained from the right things, then you were pure. Um, if you uh, took care to wash and cleanse yourself during mealtimes, you were also pure. Basically, it was, when, it was what went in the body. It was the, th the rituals that you were a part of, the way that you behaved that made you a part of the kingdom of God. But Paul uh, corrects people's understanding of that, and he says righteousness, the kingdom of God, is a matter of righteousness. And what does that look like, that righteousness? Peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. So according to Paul, what it means to be a person who is following Jesus above all else is also, a is also these two things that Jesus points out here in the Sermon on the Mount. It is someone who possesses joy and someone who experiences peace, the kind of peace that you would have if the person you're following had overcome the world. That's a big thing. 
Jesus promises, we said last week, a profound joy, a huge, massive joy. And this week, he promises a peace that is so great that it, it, it's as though he's overcome the world because he has. Here's the question that I've been asking myself all week as I look at this. How does Jesus give us that joy? How does Jesus actually give us that joy that he promises? What does it look like? How do we get it? How do we experience it? How do we know that it's a part of our life? If you are a Christian here today, then according to Scripture, according to the things that Jesus lays out, you should be a person who is experiencing joy. Now, I'm careful with shoulds. Pastors should be careful with shoulds. Because should makes us feel guilty. It makes us feel like there's a burden that's been added to us. But the reason I say this is because it's important for us to understand how it's supposed to work. And the way it's supposed to work is that if you're in Christ, you are experiencing a profound sense of joy. That if you're in Christ, you're also experiencing a profound sense of peace. Ones that sort of surpass any other joy and peace that you can experience in the world. I'm not trying to make anyone feel bad who doesn't feel that they don't experience joy, who doesn't feel that you don't experience peace, but we can't get anywhere with what Jesus is teaching us here if we start changing what he's saying from step one, right? If we start expecting it to look differently than he's saying it's supposed to look. Jesus promises to those who follow him joy and peace unlike any other. In fact, he's describing a joy, for example, that exists in even the hardest and most difficult of circumstances. That's crazy. That is absolutely crazy. So if you're a Christian here today, then the single biggest, most practical, life-changing benefit of your faith is that you can be joyful today. You can experience an incredible joy and peace today if you're a follower of Jesus. That's what he promises us. How? How does Jesus give us joy? How do we receive it? What does it look like? I want to talk about how he gives it to us real quick, and I want to talk about why we may not sometimes experience it, because I think a lot of us maybe feel like we don't. How does Jesus give us joy? The first thing that he does is he simply shows us the truth. The joy that we have in Christ is rooted in truth, meaning he tells us that things are really a certain way, even if they don't appear that way to us in this world. And, and because he's given us this incredible truth that opens up our eyes to what's really going on, that truth is so profound and powerful and huge that it gives us joy. It's a truth that brings us joy. It's the best news that there could be. Jesus is giving us good news. And that good news is so good that it gives us great joy. We cannot help but have joy if we believe it. You see, our joy is ultimately rooted in, in who God is, the goodness of God, as our creator, God created us to enjoy him. He created us to worship and enjoy him. Him more than anything else. 
And so there's something about understanding and seeing and experiencing God and his truth that brings us joy. I was backpacking a few weeks ago, and I was in this beautiful spot in nature. And as I looked out at this lake in the morning, and a bald eagle flew by, and like, you know, there were ducks in the water and everything, it was an incredibly joyful experience for me. I found joy in it. Why? Why, when we look at something beautiful, when we look at something like that, would we experience joy? It's just there. It's not doing anything different for me. It's not giving me anything. The bald eagle didn't come down and land in my lap and rub its head up against me and let me hug it, you know? Probably would have been arrested if that happened. I don't know the law, but I'm pretty sure you can't hug bald eagles. I've tried. Can't even catch them. Jesus talks about this in what we looked at last week, actually. This idea that you would have joy in something that isn't actually like immediately giving you some benefit to make your life easier. He talks about it like a mother who experiences the pains of childbirth. A mother experiences these terrible pains in childbirth, but then what comes is a child. So what is it about that little baby that makes the mother so joyful? that makes the father so joyful? What are they giving you? How are they making your life easier? They're not better. They're costing you, really. And yet there's something about that child, that baby, that produces such a profound sense of joy in their mother or father that it actually causes them to forget, especially the father probably, but forget the pain of childbirth. Isn't that crazy? Forget. Like, forget. All of a sudden, this thing that's good is better than the thing that was bad before. You see, what he's talking about is so similar to the joy we have in God because God himself is so good that for us to simply take pleasure in who he is brings us an incredible sense of joy. Even if it doesn't automatically make my life easier today. Even if it doesn't give me something that I thought I needed today. Even if it doesn't put more money in my bank accounts, make my body feel a little bit less achy, make the weather a little bit nicer, make people a little bit nicer to me. Put money in my bank account. Did I already say that one? (laughs) Bring me a bald eagle to give me a hug. Even if it doesn't do any of those things, there's something about who God is that I can find joy in him just in who he is. In the same way that I can stand in God's creation and find joy and take joy in it. In the same way that a mother or father can hold their child and take joy in that child even though they're not actually doing something for them in that moment. You see, Jesus shows us the truth of who God really is. He is the incarnate God. He is God in the flesh, and he showed people in a vivid way like what, who God was, how much he loved them, how good he was, and he shared the message of the gospel with them, And he shared them all this incredibly good news. And the good news is true, it turns out. So our joy is rooted not just in in the truth of who God is, but the things that we know are true that Jesus has told us. God has promised us things that seem too good to be true, but they are true. They're not too good to be true. They are true. Jesus has told us these things, and so our joy is rooted, above all else, in believing in the truth of these things that he tells us. There is incredible 
good news that comes from Jesus. The creator of the universe, Jesus tells us, created you. Purposefully created you. Scripture tells us that that each one of us is knitted together in our mother's womb, painstakingly created by a loving father, which means no matter uh, what the circumstances of your, your childhood, your family, your birth were, whatever you felt that you had or didn't have, like whatever you, whatever you felt about yourself and how you came into the world, whatever messages are out there in this world that tell you that you don't matter, that you aren't important, that you aren't significant, that before you ever accomplish anything in your life, before you ever realize any potential that you might have, before you ever get anyone to like you in this world, the most important thing has already happened. The God of the universe loved you enough and intended for you to be you, knitted you together and purposefully made you. You're not an accident. You're not a mistake. This is not some random chance. The truth is that the creator of all creation made you and I, knitted us together, and loves us. Another truth that Jesus shows us and tells us is that the same God who did that, uh, when Jesus was baptized, the Holy Spirit ascended, descended, and the Holy Spirit descended upon him, and, and God says, this is my beloved Son with whom I love, with whom I am well pleased. And then what Jesus tells us is that the good news of the gospel is that he stands in our place because he's taken our place through his sacrifice on the cross. So we now relate to God. If you're, a, if you're a Christian, if you believe and trust in Jesus for your salvation and not yourself, then, then we now um, have the relationship with God that Jesus would have with God, which means that when God looks at us, he sees us the way he would see Jesus, which means that the God of the universe, who would say this, This is my beloved son, whom I love, with whom I am well pleased, says that very thing about you. How crazy is that? So again, before I ever have to prove anything to anyone, before I ever have to get anyone to like me, before I ever have to accomplish anything to justify my existence in this world, to feel like I matter, before any of that, the good news of the gospel is that if I trust in Jesus, that the God of the universe says of me, this is my child who I love with whom I am well pleased. You know how many people I have talked to who have lived so much of their life before they actually heard those words from their earthly father or mother and how much it meant to them to finally hear those words, I'm proud of you. I'm proud of you. I'm proud of who you are, or I'm proud of what you've done. Those words matter to us. They mean the world to us. And they mean more than anything coming from our father or our mother. And so to know that our heavenly father says that of us if we're in Christ, that is really good news. That is a truth that is really good news. It's almost too good to be true, it seems. The good news that Jesus shows us is that the resurrection is real. 
that he would die, but he would ultimately be resurrected, that he would defeat death itself. He would conquer death itself. I don't know about you, but I think that's pretty good news. I think that a fear of death and what death brings and what sickness and decay brings is the big thing that scares most of us, that chases most of us down at night. The big thing that we're trying to find a way to, 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 to fix that problem, to solve that thing. And Jesus shows and tells his disciples that he has overcome death. He's defeated it. The resurrection is real, which means that changes everything about the trajectory of my life. The good news that we hear from Jesus is that the kingdom of God itself is real. Heaven, being in the presence of God eternally, is what we have to look forward to. And even the best descriptions of heaven in Scripture, the most vivid descriptions of it, can only get close enough to basically say that the streets are paved with gold. Like, what? Make it simple for you. The, the, the cheapest thing there... The, the ground, the streets, which were usually dirt at the time, uh, will be like gold, the best thing that we think of that we have, at least at the time it was written. So what we know to be the best is like going to be the lowest thing there. To be in the presence of God forever. To be a part of the kingdom of God. That's something that we have to look forward to, and it's also something that we begin to experience now if we live in Christ we get to experience the power of being a part of God's kingdom. Living eternal life already beginning now. These are incredible truths. This is good news. And, and the, the way that Jesus gives us joy is first and foremost, more than anything else, he points us to the truth and said, this is actually what's happening around you. This is actually what's going on in the world you're living in. But it's hard for many of us to see that truth in this world we live in. Even if we follow Jesus, even if we love and trust in Jesus. The other thing that Jesus does is he helps us believe the truth. Jesus reaches out to us. Jesus ministers to us. Jesus shows his compassion to us. Jesus does for us what he did for the people that he met along the road, that he did for his disciples when he called them to him and took care of them. Jesus helps us to actually believe the truth that we seem to have such a hard time believing. He helps us do that. And the more that we can be in his presence, the more that we find ourselves living in the reality of, of, of these good truths that I just said, rather than all the other junk around us that makes things so confusing, so painful. So here's the question. You may be feeling this way, but I know Jesus, and I don't have that kind of joy. I know Jesus, but I didn't wake up today feeling this overwhelming sense of joy. When the hard times come, I don't feel an overwhelming sense of joy. I can't say honestly that I feel an overwhelming sense of peace when the anxiety and the fear creep in. So what's happening there? Because I think when we read these words of Jesus, I have overcome the world, we have to ask ourselves, am I living that truth? Do I believe that he's overcome the world? 
Do I live each day as a person who has overcome the world because I'm in Christ? I think it is so easy for us to miss out on this joy that Jesus promises, to miss out on this peace for a couple of different reasons. I think the first one is this. There's noise around us and it drowns out this truth. The fact is we live in a world that's telling us a lot of things apart from the truth that Jesus tells us. We live in a world that is constantly inundating us with information. We have access to so much information now. And so much of that information, the majority of that information is telling us things that are opposite from what Jesus is telling us. It is telling us that you are a complete accident, that this is all some crazy weird thing that happened by chance. It is telling us that, that, that you have to prove yourself, that you have to justify your existence, that you have to become some amazingly self-actualized version of yourself in order to actually justify being here at all. You have to make some big splash. You have to get people to see you a certain way. That, that, that your value, that your, that your peace and your joy are going to need to be dependent on the things that you have, the comfortable life that you live, your health, the world that you live in and where you live in the world. We are surrounded by so much information that basically dilutes and drowns out this truth of Jesus, which is probably the biggest reason why so many of us don't really feel this sense of joy that Jesus is promising and assuring his disciples are going to live in. The circumstances in our lives can get hard and the pain and the suffering can kind of drown out these promises as we pay more attention to that pain and what's going on than about the things that Jesus tells us in that pain. I mean, like, go online at any point and just be overwhelmed by the sheer amount of information about things that you have absolutely no control over, right? I can't fix that problem. I can't do anything about this problem. I, I literally can't do anything about it, right? So what do I do? What do I do with the constant flow of information of things that seem bad, that seem broken, or that tell me the opposite of what Jesus says? I can either uh, choose to just check out and become apathetic and be like, I can't do anything about anything. I can't care about anything, right? Or we get angry. Or we get angry. We're angry about the way things are. We're angry about the world that we live in. And, and we're not people filled with joy, but we're people who are consumed by anger and frustration and resentment because of the things around us. The truth is that um, being in Christ and experiencing the joy he promises us um, is a matter of pushing back those things and allowing the truths that Jesus tells us to win out. Uh, what it means to be a follower of Jesus is often to simply put ourselves in God's word, to talk to God, to be around others who believe in these truths, to gather with others around God's word, to worship God the way that we do now, to become a part of a community of people where we're going to be reminded of and living in these truths over and over. And by doing that, 
we put ourselves in a place where these incredible, amazing truths of God can bring us joy instead of us allowing these things to be diluted. We left town for like almost a month in the beginning of the summer, and we have a pool. And I put all this chlorine tablets in my little floating thing in my pool, and I shocked my pool, and I made sure it was nice and full of water, and then I just, we left. And I was like, what am I going to find when I get back, right? Because if you have a pool, uh, and it's not a big pool, and it starts to get warm, uh, then uh, what happens is you may begin fighting the eternal, never-ending battle of the green pool. And once the green stuff comes in, good luck, man, good luck, right? It's like all of a sudden, overnight, it goes from clear to murky and gross and green, And it's almost like there's nothing you can do, no matter how hard you try to combat that stuff, it's just going to keep coming. It's going to keep growing. This is often how it is to be with Christ, is that what we do is that we kind of don't think about stuff that has to do with Jesus. We don't think about the truths of God. We don't spend time in his word. We don't talk to him in prayer. We don't spend time in a community most of the time. And then we just kind of binge it, or we just kind of come back to those things whenever we have time. But what we find is that if we're not in those things regularly, if we're not living in that world, the truth of God, then it doesn't really work out very well, does it? You can't just take in a bunch of stuff. I I destroyed my last pool by just shocking it all the time because I was lazy and I would just like throw all these chemicals in there, probably make my kids go blind. That was why they were blind that year. Now I'm realizing we all had like blonde hair and we were all blind that year. I shouldn't put it in while they're in, but I'm just impatient, you know. Make them swim around with it for a while. Stir it up with an oar. We have an oar for that. It's like a big pot of soup. Anyway, you can't do it that way, but that's, that's how most of us approach trying to deal with the noise drowning us out, right? Um, so what Jesus tells his disciples to do is what? He says, remain in me. Stay connected to me. Love one another in community. Live your life in such a way that you are surrounded by and living in and repeating back and hearing and listening to these truths of mine that will bring you joy. Live your life in that place, from that place, as often as you can. Because there's all this stuff that is crowding those things out, that wants to say, no, these truths are more important, these truths are better. And we all think that we're strong enough to resist them, but I think we overestimate our ability to do that. I think the other thing that robs us of our joy in Christ is not just the noise of all these things around us, but we try to find our joy in these things that God gives us. You see, most of the people that came to, came to Jesus to follow him got something from him initially. They, they found something in him. He healed them. He gave them food. He listened to them with a compassionate ear. He provided them even with community when they didn't have one otherwise. And we often come to God, come to Jesus because of, of some benefit that it brings us. And, and Jesus ministered to people by showing them compassion, by meeting their needs. That's not a bad thing. But it's very easy for us when we talk about the joy of the Lord, when we talk about the peace that God brings, to just attach it to things that God gives us. And then the way we approach God and we approach Jesus is because I have faith in Jesus and because I trust in God, he'll give me more financial security. He'll provide for me, and that's what my joy comes in. 
He'll give me an amazing family that love each other in such an incredible, profound way, and that's how I'll experience the joy of the Lord. He'll give me health because I trust that he'll do that for me, and that's how I experience the joy of the Lord. We think that God gives us this ability to experience joy by giving us things that will bring us joy. But when we start to expect it to work that way, what we find is that's not actually the way it works, and that doesn't produce joy. And so it robs us of our joy in Christ. And so even though we're a disciple of Jesus, even though these things are true about God, we wake up in the morning and we don't feel joyful. We don't feel a peace that says, I have overcome the world. Why? Because we've been looking to things to find joy. And if we step back and we look at our lives, oftentimes um, our lives are as secular as those who don't believe in Jesus at all, right? We're investing all of our time and all of our effort trying to find joy and satisfaction in things, not in these truths of who God is. Now make no mistake, Jesus says that a loving father will listen to his children who come to him and say, here's what I want, here's what I need. He will listen to them. He will give them good things. He doesn't say God doesn't care about us. In Matthew 7, in the Sermon on the Mount, we read this. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. And the one who seeks finds. And the one who knocks it will be opened. Or which of you, one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? Jesus says, as specifically as he can, that our Father who loves us will provide for his children. He will provide what is good and what is best for his children. But we read uh, in the passage that we were looking at last week, if you recall, Jesus says this. So also you will have sorrow now, but I will see you again and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. In that day you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. So what Jesus is talking about that we looked at last week is he's kind of changing our understanding of what it means to ask and want things from God. He's saying, he's saying the, the closer that you get to this, this joy that I'm talking about, the more the kingdom of heaven is a part of your life, the more that the, that the things that you ask of God will be different. And the way that you find joy will look different. You won't just be asking him for the things that you think you need. In fact, you'll find yourself, if you truly experience this joy, so fulfilled by it that you will not need to ask for anything else. You won't actually need those things anymore. So does he love us? Yes. Does our Father want to provide for us? Yes. But our Father also knows that by just giving us thing after thing, solving problem after problem, we will not actually experience joy and peace. We'll just become dependent on the cosmic vending machine that is God, giving us what we ask for when we punch in the number. I think the, the other reason that we get robbed of this joy in Christ. The other thing that kind of gets in the way of us finding it is that we try to find our joy. Oh, I already said this. Is that we try to find our joy in the things that God gives us. And then lastly, we forget about the gospel. We go back to proving ourselves. What we find is that the reason that we don't have this joy, the reason that we don't have this peace is because we're actually still working pretty hard 
to try to accomplish things for God, to try to make God proud, to try to make God happy, to justify ourselves. We have this tendency to just work at things and try to prove ourselves, to try to justify ourselves. If you ask a person on the street, the statistics show that if you ask a person on the street, do you believe in God? About 50% of people will say, some form or another, yes, I do. And then if you ask that 50% of people who believe in God, uh, what do you think he wants from you? It's likely that they will say, be a good person and try to love people. That's what most people would say as an answer to what do you think God wants from us, from you? Be a good person and try to love people. In fact, every kid's pastor that I know, like, works so hard to, like, teach and explain and apply the gospel into the lives of young people, and then is always kind of wondering, like, what they'll say back when asked about what makes you a follower of Jesus, right? Like, what is the gospel? Because there's something in us that's kind of wired in such a way that we still believe, we want to believe so much that it's our behavior, it's what we do that actually makes us in a good standing with God. Because of that, because we're wired to be self-justifiers, because we're wired to think that God expects us to work hard again and again just to please him, then what we do is we inadvertently start to live our lives in such a way that says, if I do the right things, I'll have joy. If I do the right things, I'll have joy. You see, it's not that we don't believe in the joy of God. It's not that we don't, uh, we would not agree with this statement. I think most would agree, most who are Christians would agree uh, with this statement. We wouldn't say, no, that's not true. When Jesus says, take heart, I have overcome the world. I think the question is, what do we think it means to have joy in God? What What are we looking for? What are we living for in an attempt to experience the joy that God gives us and the peace that God gives us? I think that for many, unfortunately, instead of actually um, living in and focusing on the truths that Jesus gives us, this incredibly good news, this incredibly good news that we can simply go back to as often as humanly possible and live in the power of that good news, that instead of that, for many of us, it's easy to make the mistake of thinking that that joy comes from the things that I have, from the things that God gives me, you know. He'll give it to me. But, but it's still, God's in there somewhere, but it's, but it's the things that I have, right? It's the circumstances of my life. It's the way it's going. That, that that is how God gives me joy. Or, for some of us, it's the mistake of thinking, yeah, I believe in the joy of the Lord, I believe in the peace of God, I just have to work hard enough to get it, Right? I've got to do the right things enough. I've got to build the right circumstances around me. I've got to prove myself or or figure out enough or accomplish enough. And then when I do, I'll get to experience the joy of the Lord. Didn't come today. Wasn't there yesterday. But I'm holding out hope that maybe it's going to be there one day. I think it's so easy for us to misunderstand what it looks like to try to find joy in the Lord. But there's nothing more encouraging than Jesus' words to his disciples here. He says to them, it's going to be tough. Life is going to be hard. We know that suffering exists in life. And Jesus says that if you're a disciple of mine, uh, 
it's probably going to be even harder. But what he promises is a joy that is so profound that each one of these disciples would ultimately give their life for the gospel. I mean, how much, and, and would all along the way speak to the joy of the Lord that fills them up, to the peace that they experience that surpasses understanding. It like doesn't make sense that they would have that much peace. The truth is, if we can simply rest in and live in light of these things that we know are true, not allow all of the information in the world, maybe limit some of the information in the world, and maybe increase the amount of time that we're spending on these truths about God. Those who were around that can encourage us in those truths. The time that we look to God's word to remind us of these truths. Coming and gathering and worshiping together, singing truths about God that are tremendously good news. Reflecting on these things that are not easy for us to believe living in the world that we live in, this fallen world. That if, if we can do that, what we find is that the joy of the Lord is more present. We find that God's peace is there. It's not because we accomplished anything. It's simply because of who God is. And we find joy in him. We find satisfaction in him, greater than anything that we can ever search and find it in. Let's pray.